as an elder does not give me much opportunity to exposit just because of another full-time job that I have. Uh, but today we're going to exposit verses 17 through 30 this morning. Um, and what we're going to learn about is the last Passover and the first Lord's Supper or communion. And I have titled this, The Greatest Memorial. If you would, look with me again. Bob has read this, but I would like to read it to you again before we start the exposition of the text. Starting in verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said... Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is near. I am keeping the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. And being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. And he answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man is going, just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Surely not I, Rabbi. Jesus said to him, You yourself said it. Now while they were eating, Jesus took some bread. And after a blessing, he broke it. And giving it to the disciples, he said, Take, eat. This is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Let us pray. Father, I ask at this time that you would calm our hearts, that you would help us to hone in on the Scriptures, not worry about what's coming this afternoon, the problems that we may feel about our lives, but that we will set those things aside, concentrate and meditate on your Word before we take of this precious memorial that we have been given by Christ to remember His death, His sacrifice, and the promises that follow to those that believe. And so we ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. I am a history teacher and a Bible teacher. So I know nothing outside of those two areas. So we're going to start with a little history and then we'll move to the Bible. Early on the morning of June the 6th, 1944, the 2nd Battalion Rangers are heading to a place in France called Pointe du Hoc. Their objective is to land on the beach, climb up a 100-foot cliff, 
and take out six 155mm guns. The reason these Army Rangers need to take out these 155mm guns before the main D-Day invasion begins is because those guns have around a 12-mile range and they actually set about four to five miles from Omaha and Utah Beach. And so those beaches will not be able to be taken at all. There's no shot whatsoever if those 155mm guns are in place. There most likely would be no foothold in France and likely a Nazi victory. So these army rangers, at any cost, must take this point. But things don't start off well. There is a strong tide that morning that pushes the rangers farther down the coast from where they're supposed to land. And by the time they get to the cliff that they're supposed to scale, where those guns are located at that point on the top of that cliff, they are 40 minutes behind schedule. By this time, the Allied bombing of Point du Hoc had ceased so that the Army Rangers could come up over the top of the cliff and then take that point and those gun emplacements out. But because they're 40 minutes behind, the bombing has stopped before they've got to the point of where they're going to take that those gun emplacements. And so the Germans are coming back out of their bunkers now and they're very much aware of the rangers trying to scale the cliff. Not only that, but their climbing gear is soaking wet. The ropes are too heavy to be fired from where they were originally going to be fired from and so they have to get right up underneath the cliff to fire those rocket-propelled ropes up to where they can scale the cliff. While they are climbing, they are being shot at. Some are being shot. Ropes are being cut. Grenades are being thrown. Even rocks are being thrown down on them as they attempt to climb. But those rangers do not quit. Some of them whose ropes have been cut continuous bombing that had been taking place. But the rangers find those guns, they were hidden down the road a piece, and destroy them. If you go to Point du Hoc today, the massive bomb craters still remain. They chose to make the entire point a memorial. They also erected on the end of that point a large stone dagger with the names of the men that gave their lives so that others might live. There was a very high price in taking that point. 225 men began the mission and only 90 survived. It was called the most dangerous mission of the D-Day invasion. So why do we place memorials at places like Point du Hoc? Why do we have, if you go to the National Mall there in Washington, D.C., there is roughly about 10 or 12 memorials all around that. You've got Jefferson Memorial, you've got the World War II, World War I Memorial, Vietnam, Korea. All of that is right in there. So why do we erect these memorials? And the reason is to remember. To remember great achievements in the face of overwhelming odds. To remember tremendous sacrifice for a noble cause. 
so that following generations will not forget the sacrifice. They will forget if we don't remind them. They will forget if there's not memorials. And they will not appreciate their freedoms that those sacrifices have secured. And to forget is to repeat the mistakes of the past. Which sadly to say, even with memorials and even with history classes, we still repeat the same types of mistakes. But the largest of all memorials on this earth is not a marble statue or a wall, but a symbolic meal. And this memorial is the Lord's Supper. This passage and the practice of communion or the Lord's Supper is to remind us of the incredible price that was paid. The debt that we owed had, has been written off. And when we keep that as our focus in our life of what Christ has done for us, it really changes the way we treat others, the way we think, how we serve, what our motivation is, how we look at the world and the things of the world. It changes our commitments. If we are not reminded often of what Christ did, we tend to forget We tend to get so involved in our worldly lives, not necessarily sin, but we just get so busied up that we forget. And Jesus knew that we needed to be reminded of what He had done or we'll easily get our eyes off of Him. So what we do today is we pause to examine our lives, to see where we're at, to look deeply in our heart. And we also look to remember the great price that was paid on our behalf that we could not pay. So, we're in the book of Matthew. I had the privilege of, in my last church, going through the book of Matthew. And so, I'm just going to jump in here, uh, telling you that the book of Matthew is written from the perspective that Christ is the King. Uh, And the one thing you see as you go through the book, even in the crucifixion itself, is that this King, Jesus the Christ, will always be seen in dignity, glory, and in control. It shows His power and His sovereign grace. The murder of Jesus Christ is the most sinful and depraved act that has taken place on the face of the earth. But... Through it, God accomplished the greatest gift that could be given, the forgiveness of our sins, so that we can be with God forever. And so Jesus is not an emotional wreck at the end of this book. There are things to do. There are things to accomplish. His disciples still have much to learn. And so we're going to jump into what I believe is Thursday of the Passion Week. Things that needed to be reminded, uh, they needed to be reminded of over and over again, and things that we need to be reminded of over and over again, because we forget. Now on this Thursday, we're going to see the preparation for the Passover. Three points, no poem, but three points. Uh, We're going to see the preparation for the Passover, the celebration of the Passover, and then the transition from the Passover. And that is Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper. Let's begin in verses 17 through 19 with the preparations for the Passover. It says in verses 17 through 19 again, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, 
Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is near. I am keeping the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. There are approximately five religious ceremonies on the Jewish calendar in the first century. And one of the central feasts and celebration was that of the Passover. It's also called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And this celebration is actually an eight-day event. The celebration was for the purpose of remembering Israel's deliverance from the Egyptians. If you read the account of the first Passover in Exodus chapter 12, they were commanded to remove the leaven out of their houses, and they were not to have any for seven days. Now the idea of leaven throughout the Scriptures represents influence, and it's usually evil influence. So when God told them that they were not to take leavened bread with them, and they were to clean it out of their houses, it it is symbolic. It's not because God has something against leaven. It's because it's symbolic. It represents something. It symbolizes them leaving behind all of the evil influences of the Egyptians. And because of God's great work in Egypt, God said this will be a memorial each year. So ever since then, the children of Israel have been delivered from Egypt. They were to remove leaven from their houses and eat only unleavened bread for seven days. So the Passover began. That was one day. And then there are seven days of unleavened bread. What you would do was four days before the Passover, you would select a sacrificial lamb. And you would bring that into your home for those four days. You treat it like a pet. You feed it. You take care of it. You sleep with the animal in your house. And then what do you do with it? You sacrifice it. That means that on Monday of the Passion Week, the disciples would have selected a lamb and kept it. The lamb may have been kept at Mary, Martha, Lazarus' house in Bethany. Now it is time to celebrate the Passover. During a typical Passover in Jesus' day, there would be over 250,000 sacrificial lambs slain. Those lambs would be slain at the temple, and so an enormous amount of blood would pour from the altar and drain from the temple down into the Kidron Valley. And historians tell us that a small river would run crimson red for several days after the Passover. So we find ourselves most likely early Thursday morning of the Passion Week where the disciples come to Jesus and they ask Him, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? They would have to buy the unleavened bread. They would have to buy the wine, the bitter herbs, the nuts and the fruit for the dip for the Passover meal, just as was prescribed in Exodus chapter 12. And the Passover lamb was to be slain at twilight is what it says. Josephus explains that time, that time, as being between the ninth and eleventh hour of the Jewish day, which would be between three and five o'clock in the afternoon. After being slaughtered by the priest in the temple court and having some of the blood sprinkled on the altar, the lamb would then be taken home, roasted whole, and eaten in a special evening meal with unleavened bread, bitter herbs, 
the dip and the wine. Any of that that was not eaten before the morning was to be burned according to Exodus chapter 12. By this time, which once again I believe is Thursday morning, the disciples would have all of their herbs, their fruits, their nuts, the unleavened bread, the wine. They have the sacrificial lamb. But they do not have a place to eat this meal, which was to be done within the city limits of Jerusalem. And because of that, it would be hard to find a room. And perhaps the disciples are actually thinking Jesus has already secured a place for them to celebrate the Passover. And maybe that's why they ask, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And Jesus gives a rather odd answer to his disciples in verse 18. He tells them to go into the city and find a certain man. And this is a man that they do not know. And the reason we know that they don't know him is because in Mark 14 and in Luke 22, which are the parallel accounts of this, the man is identified because he's carrying a pitcher of water. So they don't know him, and he's only identified as one who is carrying a pitcher of water. And this would be odd for a man to be walking through the street carrying a pitcher of water. That's considered a domestic job in that culture. Continuing in verse 18, the disciples were to say to that man that was carrying the pitcher of water that the teacher says, My time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Mark 14 says that Peter and John saw the man with the pitcher of water. They follow him to the house. They repeated the word Jesus to the owner of the house who shows them a large upper room furnished and ready. It is God's plan that Jesus keep the Passover with His disciples. Because something is going to take place here. There's going to be a change from the Passover meal of the Old Testament. There was the shedding of the Lamb's blood. And that is now going to be changed over to the Lord's Supper of the New Covenant, which is brought about by the shedding of Christ's own blood. So these disciples, which we know in the parallel accounts are Peter and John, have been directed by Jesus to where they are to prepare the Passover. So we've seen the preparation for the Passover. Now the celebration of the Passover in verses 20 to 25. It says in verse 20, Now when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. And as they were eating, He said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray Me. And being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to Him, Surely not I, Lord. And He answered and said, He who dipped His hand with Me in the bowl is the one who will betray Me. The Son of Man is going, just as it is written of Him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying Him, answered and said, Surely not I, Rabbi. Jesus said to him, You yourself said it. It is now sometime after 6 o'clock. The original Passover meal in Egypt It says there in Exodus chapter 12 was to be eaten in haste. You fasten your belt. Uh, You put the sandals on your feet. You have your staff in your hand. But it had changed through the years. And we see that Jesus is reclining at a table with His twelve disciples where they are eating. And there are strict guidelines in eating this meal. 
Uh, we are told, we learned that there are four cups involved in the meal. The first one was wine mixed with water and it was doubly diluted so that you would not become drunk or get a buzz through this very serious occasion. After partaking of the first cup, there was the giving of thanks to God. Next would be the ceremonial washing of hands. Remember, they are celebrating God's deliverance from Egypt, but they're also celebrating deliverance from spiritual bondage to sin. So the washing of the hands symbolizes spiritual cleansing and holiness of heart. In Luke 22, we find out that after his disciples start to, after this, they start to dispute among themselves about which one is greater. It is obvious that their hearts were still proud and they were self-serving. And they were just as ambitious as they had ever been. They had been exposed to so much teaching, yet these men just didn't seem to grasp it. And the Lord has to give them a visual lesson. In John 13 it says that He got up from the table, He laid aside His garments, He took a towel, and He began to wash the disciples' feet. It was an example that they should do the same to each other. Washing other people's feet was normally done by a servant and considered a demeaning task. But Jesus gives an example of humility and selfless service. And it was done as a rebuke to the pride and arrogance of these disciples. It was also a lesson in love. A love for one another that sets aside oneself. We might say, and I've said this before, those are some thick-headed disciples always arguing about who's going to be preeminent in the kingdom. But you know what? The more I age and the more I understand just how thick-headed I am and how much I need lessons in humility. When I was young, I thought I knew everything. And now that I'm older, I realize I don't know very much at all. We shouldn't despise lessons in humility from our Father We should look into Scripture and meditate on our Savior and Lord. Who is our example? Who walked this path? Who was humble? Who was lowly? Who cared for others? Who sacrificed for others? That is what we are to be. One part of what we do here in in communion, what we have been asked by the Lord Jesus Christ, is to examine ourselves. It's a time where I hope, before you ever got here this morning, You were looking into your heart and examining your life because it's so easy. It's so easy to see others. It's so easy to see the faults of others and see how Israel over and over again keeps doing these things. God saves them and they go back. And God saves them and they go back. But that's really the cycle in which we live in a lot of times as well. And we can become blind to those things. We need to ask, God, to open our eyes to where we are falling short, where sin has lodged itself into our lives, and be humble people. The next part of the Passover meal was the eating of bitter herbs. And this has symbolism as well. It represents the bitter bondage that their forefathers had endured during Egypt. And the unleavened bread was dipped into this mixture of bitter herbs. 
They also had ground fruit and nuts mixed in with The fourth part of the Passover was the taking of the second cup of wine. The head of the household would take the cup and he would explain the meaning of the Passover. Following the second cup, there would be some singing of praise to God. And after the singing, they would bring out the roasted lamb. The head of the household would wash his hands again and then break pieces of the unleavened bread and hand it out to be eaten with the lamb. It is at this time in the meal that Jesus reveals that one will betray Him. This is in verse 21. As they were eating the meal, the roasted lamb and the unleavened bread, He says, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray Me. The word betray literally means to give over. It has the idea of giving a prisoner over for punishment. Up to this point in the life of Christ, He has spoken of His death four times to His disciples. But this is the first time He mentions His betrayal. And the disciples are deeply grieved because He says, it is one of you that will betray Me. The deepest wounds usually are made by those who are closest to us. Those who are our friends, who are supposed to support and love us. And sometimes it comes from our own household. David talks about this in Psalm 55, verses 12-14, through 14, where he says, For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has magnified himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man my equal, my close companion, and my familiar friend. We who had sweet counsel together walked in the house of God in the throne. The disciples knew that Jesus had many enemies, but they are shocked and they are deeply grieved because the betrayal is coming from this group, the close associates. Those were supposed to be His friends. In John 13 it says that they didn't know who He was speaking of. Listen, those paintings of the Last Supper and you've got this scowling person over here in the corner is supposed to represent Judas. That's not... That's not factual. That's not true. Because if it was, if he was always the odd man, if he was always the person that seemed to be negative and not on board, they would have gone right to him and said, it's got to be Judas. But they don't. He's not even suspected when he gets up in the middle of everything and leaves. But here and also in Luke 22, it tells us that the disciples began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be, who was going to do this horrific thing. But you know what their primary concern was? It was for themselves. It was for themselves. Look at the last part of verse 22. Surely not I, Lord. Each one of them was saying that. They have just been rebuked. Jesus has just washed their feet and dried their feet. And so they've been rebuked for pride and arrogance about who is the greatest and who will uh, be the preeminent one. And so it seems as if they have accepted that rebuke from the Lord and they are now genuinely humble and they lack trust in themselves now. They had been brought face to face with hidden sin in their hearts. Jesus had exposed their pride and their sinfulness. And so they were open to the possibility that somehow they might be the one that betrays Christ. 
Listen, my friends, we are sinful creatures. And sin has distorted our view of ourselves. And we can become like these disciples if sin is not exposed. If it is not revealed in our life. If it is not rebuked. If it doesn't take place, we can continue thinking that we're okay. God does not allow a Christian to have secret sins. He is going to expose those things. Not for your embarrassment, but it is grace and for your good. Listen, for sin to die, for it to lose its grip, it has to be drug out into the light. Sin that is hidden grows like a black mold in our lives. But it cannot continue to grow in the light. If there's sin in your life, expose it. Expose it to the light. Tell an elder. Tell a spouse. Tell a mentor. So that it's no longer hidden. So that person that you have told can help you shine the light of God's truth on that sin and break its grip in your life. Don't hold on to those things. Let them go. They're not worth your destruction. And listen, sin in private, those things that we hold on to in private, they don't just affect you. They affect everyone around you. Sin is like a cancer. It continues to spread. So the disciples here are worried that maybe I'm the one that's going to betray Christ. But Jesus doesn't really alleviate their fears because He goes on to say that one, the one who dips his hand with me in the bowl, he's the one that's going to betray him. Now they've already eaten the unleavened bread and everybody's dipped their hand in the bowl. So it's not really a relief for any of them here. All of them had done that. But Jesus knows who it is. He assures them in John chapter 13 that it's just one. It's not a bunch of you. He said, I don't speak of all of you. There is, I have chosen all of you, but there is one that the Scriptures may be be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. But I want you to see that Jesus puts this in the divine perspective. From the human perspective, this is a horrible thing. But in the divine perspective, which we see in verse 24, is that this is God's sovereign plan. The Son of Man is to go just as it is written of Him. Jesus doesn't fall into some sort of trap that Satan and Judas had set. But Judas, by his wicked rejection of Christ, became an instrument in God's plan. God's power is so great that He can use evil and wickedness of man to accomplish His righteous plan. Judas did make the decision to reject and betray Christ but it was also ordained by God in fulfilling His plan. Now this doesn't mean that Judas' evil act was a good thing. Some people have turned this around and they say that since God uses His betrayal, that it was a good thing. What Judas did was still evil and it is clearly told to us in the latter part of verse 24 where it says, it would have been good for that man if he had not been born. It has even been suggested in some movies and in writings that Judas intentionally betrayed Jesus in order that the world might be redeemed through his crucifixion. I actually watched a movie that did this. 
that made Judas out to be a hero to push this redemption of mankind. But there's no trace of that in the Scriptures. Judas was selfish and prideful. He was a thief, a deceiver, and he sold out his teacher and friends for a mere 30 pieces of silver. Jesus makes it clear that his destiny was not glory because he did some wonderful act. His destiny was eternal hell. Because Jesus said it would be good if this man had not even been born. It's better not to be born than to die in your sins and go to an eternal hell. A man so close to God, he heard the teachings, he saw the miracles, and he turned his back and he rejected it all. And listen, there are many Judases today. We have been warned that there will be wolves among the sheep. Those that hear the truth, week in and week out, yet they never respond to it. They continue to suppress it. They continue in their own way in their hearts, living for themselves, and they think they're okay. But they are far from okay. Listen, the Bible tells us, to whom much is given, much is required. I believe it was D.L. Moody, I couldn't confirm this, but it's lodged back there somewhere that it was D.L. Moody who said that hell burns hottest by the pulpit. The more truth you've heard and rejected, the greater punishment in hell. Listen, this isn't my opinion. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. It says, starting in verse 26 of Hebrews 10, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. These are people that had heard the truth, heard the truth, heard the truth. They're on the very edge. They're living in the community of Christians, but they have not fully trusted in Christ. They're on the edge. But a terrifying, verse 27, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Look down at verse 29. How much severer punishment do you think He will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? The greatest suffering in hell will not be your Hitlers and your Stalins. It will be your religious people that were in good Bible-believing churches. They were there week in and week out. They were in the community. They heard the truth. They knew it to be true. And they continued to reject it. They heard the truth over and over again. And when you do that, you trample underfoot the Son of God and it brings much more severe punishment. Judas had seen it all. He had heard it. The evidence was there and he refused. The Bible says that he is the son of perdition. He's the son of destruction. That he went to his place which is hell. That is the place for those who reject Christ. 
In verse 25, Judas would surely be exposed as the betrayer if he didn't ask the same questions that the other eleven had asked. And so he says, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. Jesus responds, You have said it yourself. What that phrase means is that Judas had condemned himself out of his own mouth with his own lips. By asking the question, Is it I? The obvious answer to Judas and to Christ was, Yes, it's you. So by Judas asking the question, he condemns himself here. It's only between him and the Lord until John leans back towards Jesus and asks who it is. And this is found in John 13. And Jesus tells him, It is the one where I dip the morsel in the herbs and hand it to that person. That's the one that's going to betray me. And he did that. He dipped the morsel and he hands it to Judas. This is the time where Judas' fate is sealed for all eternity because it says that at that moment Satan entered into him. Satan himself enters into Judas. And it tells us in the book of John that when this took place, Satan was not going to hang around and continue to hear Jesus' fellowship with his disciples. So Judas takes off out the door. The only one that knew what was taking place with Jesus uh, besides Jesus was John. The other disciples didn't know why he left. Some of them thought that he had been given instructions to go and buy something else for the meal, the feast, or to give something to the poor, and that's in John 13 as well. So we, we have seen the preparation of the Passover. We've seen the celebration of the Passover. And now that the betrayer is gone, the Lord is now going to transition from the Passover to what we call the Lord's Supper or Communion. And this is why we hold to that if you are a believer, you can partake of this supper, the communion. If you're not, I would strongly urge you not to do so. Not to do so. In verses 26 through 30, we see here this transition from the Passover. It says in verse 26 of Matthew 26, Now while they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, He broke it. And giving it to the disciples, he said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Olives. Judas has left and Jesus is alone with the eleven faithful disciples. And he transformed the Passover of the Old Covenant into the Lord's Supper of the New Covenant. The Passover was the oldest of Jewish festivals. It was even older than the covenant made with Moses at Sinai. It was established before the priesthood, before the tabernacle, before the law was even given. It was ordained by God while Israel was still enslaved in Egypt and it's been celebrated by God's people for around 1,500 years. But this would be the last divinely sanctioned Passover to ever be observed. Now it's been observed since then, but it's not divinely sanctioned. It's not recognized by God now. It was significant under the Old Covenant, but through Jesus Christ, something greater has come. To celebrate the Passover after Jesus is to celebrate a shadow of the reality that has come. 
Celebrating deliverance from Egypt is a weak substitute for celebrating deliverance from sin which Christ brings. Jesus here establishes a memorial to Himself. Not to look back to the lambs that were slaughtered in Egypt as a symbol of God's redeeming love and power, but to look to the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by shedding His blood on the cross took away the sins of those that would believe. While they were still eating, Jesus takes some bread and He blesses it and He breaks it and gives it to His disciples and He tells them to eat. Shortly after that, He takes a cup and gives thanks and He gave it to them saying, Drink from it, all of you. Mark 14 tells us that all 11 disciples drank from it. These two acts of Jesus are normal features of the Passover. The unleavened bread was eaten. The diluted wine was drank at several points during the meal. And this cup is most likely the third cup, which is called the cup of blessings. So Jesus takes this bread and He breaks it. And He tells them what it signifies, what it points to. He says, this is my body. And this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Jesus gives these two normal traditional parts of the Passover ceremony new meaning. Now the unleavened bread represents His body. Originally it symbolized them leaving Egypt and carrying nothing of the pagan oppression and the the leaven of sin and the influences there into the promised land. It represented separation from worldliness and sin and the beginning of a new life of holiness and godliness. But Jesus transforms it into another symbol. From now on the bread would represent Christ's own body which is a sacrifice that brings salvation Luke reports that Jesus said that it is given for you, do this in remembrance of me, indicating He was instituting a memorial of His sacrificial death for His followers to observe. Jesus is not speaking literally here that the bread is His actual body. It is no more literal than when Jesus said He is the vine and His followers are the branches. As the disciples ate the bread and drank from the cup, Jesus said, this is my blood of the covenant. In Luke 22, it specifies and says, New Covenant. And that distinguishes it from all other covenants. Most of those early covenants were made with blood. Moses took blood and he sprinkled it on the people. The Noahic Covenant, what did Noah do when he got out of the ark? He sacrificed. Scripture tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And Jesus, as the supreme sacrifice, surely shed His blood. He bled from the crown of thorns, the lacerations on His back, the puncture wounds in His feet and His hands. And even after He died, the spear was thrust in His side and blood poured out. This sacrifice, this shedding of blood is not just a trickle of blood. It is a sacrifice. It is death. Jesus' death was the giving of an unblemished, pure, holy, righteous, and perfect life for corrupt, depraved, fully sinful, unregenerate men and women who rebel. Because Jesus Christ was God and He was the perfect sacrifice and He was also man, He is the God-man, God in flesh, He was able to provide forgiveness of sin for many people, as it says at the end of verse 28. 
Jesus then gives a promise in verse 29. Jesus said He would not drink of the fruit of the vine with them again until the day when He would drink it new with them in His Father's kingdom. He had instructed them to remember Him in the eating of the unleavened bread, which represents His sacrificed body, and the drinking of the cup, which represents His shed blood as a sacrifice for sin. He says, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me in 1 Corinthians 11. This memorial is to continue until that day in His Father's kingdom. The Lord's promise to drink with His disciples in that future kingdom was another assurance of His return. An assurance that would take on an intensified meaning after His death. When I return to establish My kingdom, He promised them, you will all be there and you will all drink the cup new with Me. In other words, the Lord's Supper is not only a reminder of the Lord's sacrifice for sin, but it's also a reminder of His promise to return and for us to share in His kingdom. The supper is then concluded with the singing of a hymn, probably Psalm 118. And after they sang the hymn, they go out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus would find Himself at the foot of the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane where He prays to His Father. He would be betrayed by Judas and then arrested by the officers of the chief priests and elders. And from this point where the Lord's Supper is taking place, you've got 16 to 20 hours uh, from that moment when Jesus would die on the cross. He died, and I cannot put this in the proper terms. What we are, what we were, if you're a believer. He died for miserable, wretched sinners. We are totally undeserving. We are undeserving of having His Word, what we're talking about here today. We are undeserving of gathering in His name. We are undeserving of partaking of this Lord's Supper. We are undeserving of being in service to Him. We are undeserving of salvation. But praise God. Praise God for His deep, deep love. Praise Him for His grace. Listen, we can be, in studying history, we can be in awe of what mere men and women can accomplish. Such as those army rangers did on D-Day, where only 90 out of 225 survived. There is a massive stone memorial on that cliff to them. But listen, something far greater, infinitely greater, has been accomplished on our behalf. For the cliff of sin, death, and hell... Not one human being could climb it. No one can defeat the enemy but one. Only Christ could overcome sin and death and save us from hell. He did what no one else could do. And that is why the Lord's Supper is the greatest memorial. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I ask as we prepare our hearts to partake of this, that You would bring to mind those things that needed to be confessed and that we would confess them freely, forsake them, repent, and continuing to trust Christ that He will do what He says. And as we remember this wonderful gift of salvation that we can't comprehend, that He would do such a thing for such people, that we remember 
what He did, what He accomplished on our behalf that no one else could do. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.